you have a Bible with you, open them again to the book of Joshua. And although we will be looking at a number of different passages from chapter 13 through 21, we will kind of be centering ourselves in chapter 14. We talked this spring for a very brief amount of time about sort of the foundations of Scripture. And one of the things that we talked about was the difficult nature of translation. Translation is a very difficult thing. We talked mostly about how to translate into English, but other languages have just as many, if not more, problems than translating the Bible into English. And one of the major problems that you find when you go to more primitive languages is they lack abstract nouns. So when you have a passage like 1 Corinthians 13.1, where Paul says, If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. Now, some of the more primitive languages might not know what a gong is or a cymbal is, but you can kind of make up words that would get the point across to them. But the problem is where Paul says, I have not love. These primitive languages use concrete nouns. They use concrete things, fleshy things that you can have and you can hold. You can have a spear, you can have a stake, you can have kids, and you can have a wife because you can hold all those things. Those are tangible things, but they would lack any sort of language to explain what it is to have love. We talk about having love because we use abstract things. They don't use language like that. They need concrete things. They need things that they can hold on to. We don't like abstract things. Abstract things are difficult to understand. That's the whole purpose of them being abstract. They cover wide ground and therefore they're very difficult conceptually. We know this and God knows of our limitations. And therefore, Scripture is an incredibly earthy book. It is given to us by the Holy Spirit, but it is filled with examples and concrete things for us to hold on to as we go through Scripture so that we don't have to talk simply in abstract forms about things. We can point at things and say, this is what we mean when we say this. Last week, we talked about what it means for God to be a promise-making and promise-keeping God Today we're looking at the same passage, specifically two examples out of that passage, to try and get at what it means for us to be the kind of people who respond to the promise-making, promise-keeping God. What does it mean for us to be children of God? We don't need to talk in abstract terms about this. One of the great things about Scripture is that it gives us examples so that we would know. And in this case, we have a good example and a bad example. The good example is the example of Caleb. Caleb shows himself to be a faithful witness to one who has been shown the promises of God. And we also have the tribes of Joseph who show themselves to be bad examples of what it means to be people who are far away from God. One, a child of God. And another, well, there was a show my kids used to watch. It was called Between the Lions. And so you know I loved it because it even had a title that was filled with a pun, right? It wasn't between the lines, but between the lions and the lions were puppets. And one of the the episodes that they had or one of the kind of recurring features on there was something they called the unpeople. It was to help kids understand what the prefix un does to things. And so they would have Billy ties his shoes and then the unpeople would come out and all of a sudden Billy's shoes would be untied. Well, instead of having the children of God or the people of God as embodied in Caleb, we have the unpeople now. 
And Joseph shows, the tribes of Joseph show what it means to be the unpeople. They are pretending to be God's people. They are pretending to have faith in God's word. They are pretending to do what God says, all the while keeping themselves from actually doing what God asks of them. They are unable to do what he says. They have unbelief concerning his word. They are unwilling to act for him. And all the while, they show themselves to be the unpeople. So let's turn and see what we can learn from the word of God concerning his people. We are going to turn to two passages, and we will read them both, both examples, before we get into our points this morning. So if you will, read with me in Joshua chapter 14, beginning in verse 6. Joshua chapter 14, verse 6. Then the people of Judah came to Joshua at Gilgal, and Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, the Kenizzite, said to him, You know what the Lord said to Moses, the man of God, in Kadesh Barnea, concerning you and me. I was forty years old when Moses, the servant of the Lord, sent me from Kadesh Barnea to spy out the land. And I brought him word again as it was in my heart. But my brothers who went up with me, made the heart of the people melt. Yet I wholly follow the Lord my God. And Moses swore on that day, saying, Surely the land on which your foot has trodden shall be an inheritance for you and your children forever, because you have wholly followed the Lord my God. And now, behold, the Lord has kept me alive, just as he said, these 45 years since that time when the Lord spoke his word to Moses, while Israel walked in the wilderness. And now, behold, I am this day 85 years old. I am still as strong today as I was in the day that Moses sent me. My strength is now as my strength was then for war and for going and coming. So now, give me this hill country of which the Lord spoke on that day, for you heard on that day how the Anakim were there with great fortified cities. It may be that the Lord will be with me, and I shall drive them out, just as the Lord said. Then Joshua blessed him, and he gave Hebron to Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, for an inheritance. Therefore, Hebron became the inheritance of Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, the Kenizzite, to this day, because he wholly followed the Lord, the God of Israel. Now the name of Hebron was formerly Kiriath Arba, and Arba was the greatest man among the Anakim, and the land had rest from war. That is the good side. The bad side comes in chapter 17, and we'll begin reading in verse 12. Chapter 17, verse 12, the people of Manasseh could not take possession of those cities, but the Canaanites persisted in dwelling in that land. Now when the people of Israel grew strong, they put the Canaanites to forced labor, but they did not utterly drive them out. Then the people of Joseph spoke to Joshua, saying, Why have you given me but one lot and one portion as an inheritance, though I am a numerous people, since all along the Lord has blessed me? And Joshua said to them, If you are a numerous people, go up by yourselves to the forest, and there clear ground for yourselves in the land of the Perizzites and the Rephaim, since the hill country of Ephraim is too narrow for you. The people of Joseph said, The hill country is not enough for us. Yet all the Canaanites who dwell in the plain have chariots of iron, both those in Beth Shean and its villages, and those in the valley of Jezreel. Then Joshua said to the house of Joseph, to Ephraim and to Manasseh, 
you are a numerous people and have great power. You shall not have one allotment only, but the hill country shall be yours. For though it is a forest, you shall clear it and possess it to its furthest borders. For you shall drive out the Canaanites, though they have chariots of iron, and though they are strong. Caleb, the man of God, doing what God commands him, the good example time and time again. That passage speaks of the fact that Caleb wholly followed the Lord. The people of Ephraim and Manasseh, the tribes of Joseph, failing to do what God has called them to do, seeking things from from Joshua and not doing what he commands. What can we learn from these two? First, the child of God learns from past experiences. The child of God learns from past experiences. Caleb recounts what happened in Numbers 14 and Numbers 13 when Moses sends up the people into the land to spy out the land and they come back with a report that is both good and horrible. We've talked about this at length. This is a major event in Israel's history. The people come back and they say, yeah, here is some fruit from the land. It's good fruit and the land is indeed flowing with milk and honey, but the people there are strong. They have fortified cities and what's more, the Anakim are there. And the people are in an uproar and it is Caleb, not Joshua, in the book of Numbers who stands up and silences the people and says, no, but we can go in. One wonders at the timing of that event, what was going through the other tribe's mind. It is quite a perplexing thing given all that these people had seen. They had been in Egypt for all of the plagues that God sent upon the people. Not just the plagues that hit everybody, but the plagues that divided Israel from the Egyptians. The plagues that fell upon the Egyptians, horrible, strong plagues. They were there and they followed God out into the desert, a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night until they got to the Red Sea where God then parted waters simply by his spoken word, by the staff of Moses, parted those waters, allowing his people passageway to safety. And in the meantime, filling those waters back in when their enemies ran into it. They were there on the mountain that shook in horror and terror with earthquakes and lightnings and thunders that they were too afraid to approach because they knew if they approached it, they would die. They saw all of that. They saw all of the terror, all of the wonder, all of the power and all of the majesty of God. And then they walk up into the land and they say, I don't think that we can deal with these people. Caleb, however, has learned from that experience. Caleb doesn't deny the report. Caleb doesn't say, no, 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 they're not actually that tall. No, the fortified cities aren't really that fortified. This is sort of an exasperated report. It's exaggerated. It's not actually how it is. We can handle this. No, no, no. He doesn't deny the report at all. He simply says, we can do this. And what is reported here in Joshua 14 is, I brought him word again as it was in my heart. That is, he's not just paying lip service to this. When he came back and he looked at all of Israel and he said, we can take this land. He said it because he honestly believed in his heart that he thought God would give it to them. You see, he learned from all that past experience. He saw everything that had happened in the past. He saw all the magnificent works of God and he said, if God can do that, then God can certainly do this as well. Faced with adversity, 
Caleb doesn't just look at the adversity and the difficulty that is facing him. Instead, he looks back at the works of God and trusts that those things will happen again in the future. The people of Ephraim are in the same situation. But they, again, must have forgotten what has happened. Notice what they say. The hill country is not enough for us. That in itself presupposes that the hill country has already been won for them. That Joshua has already sent his troops through the hill country and has already driven out the Canaanites who were there. They say, but that hill country is not enough for us. We are a numerous people. And yet, you can hear the whininess in their voice, yet all the Canaanites who dwell on the plain have chariots of iron. As though they have forgotten Jericho. As though they have forgotten the five years of war that Joshua has led his people on, a people who were not accustomed to war, a nomadic, desert-wandering people that God has used to go through the Canaanites. They have forgotten about it. Faced with difficulty, all they can see is the difficulty before them, and they forget what has lied behind them. They forget the goodness of God and what he has provided for them. Friends, to be a child of God means that you forget what lies behind as concerns your sin, but you never forget the works of God that lie behind you. It is easy when you face times of difficulty, when you face difficult circumstances in your life, health issues, physical difficulties in your own body, when you face spiritual issues, when you face financial issues, any of the issues that might come upon you, it is very easy to simply look at the difficulties and forget everything that God has ever done for you. To forget all of the answered prayers, to forget all of the good things that he has given to you. This is one of the reasons why it is so important that as a family or as individuals, when you sit down to eat, you remind yourselves that this food was not simply made by Taco Bell or mom. This food was made by God for you. He has provided it for you. It is a way to remind yourself of the good things that God gives you every single day so that when adversity strikes, you're not looking around wondering if God will be good, but you know that God is good. Not just for the good things that he has given you in your life, but ultimately from all the experiences you have, and that includes, friends, the gospel. Paul writes in Romans 8, 31, 32, important verses, verses that we tread on just about every week, but when it comes to the promises of God, verses that are almost, just can't exhaust them. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Paul says, you're going to face difficulties. He's going to go on in the book of Romans and expound some of those difficulties. Nakedness, famine, sword, going to the slaughter. You will face all of those things. But how would God keep anything that you need from you? If he has already given his son, if he has already sent the most precious thing that he owns, what would he dare keep from you? Why would he keep anything from you? You can face difficult times, not because you are strong in and of yourself, but you can face difficult times because you know the God who will lead you through it because you've learned, child, you've learned. The child of God learns from past experiences. Secondly, the child of God stands for what is right. Caleb 
again, talks about the fact that he stood alone. But my brothers who went up with me made the heart of the people melt. The the brothers who stand with them, the, the chiefs of the ten tribes, stand against Caleb. Caleb says, no, we can go up. And they say, hey, no chance. We're not going up. And all the people's hearts melted. Caleb while a leader and a chief of the tribe of Judah was but nothing to the millions of people who stood there. They could run him over in an instant. And all the people murmured and complained, the same type of people who would then try and put their hand against Moses and against Aaron would certainly try to put their hand against Caleb. And yet Caleb stands up to them. He stands for what is right, what he knows to be truthful in the word of God that has been spoken. He sees the great works of God. He hears the word of God that we are to go and take the promised land and he puts his face to that. He stands up for what is right, even against the multitudes, even against the plurality that stands against him because he knows what he needs to do. This fall, we are coming up against the 500th anniversary of the Reformation. And technically, that number is a little bit wonky because the Reformation kind of comes up slowly. It's not like when Luther nails the 95 Theses to the door at Wittenberg that all of a sudden the Reformation happens. We need to recall that Luther was a Catholic monk at that time, and he was trying to reform Catholicism. The full-born Reformation doesn't happen for quite some time after that, yet that is indeed the starting point, and that is indeed the thing that gets Luther in trouble, because those theses have a lot about the Pope in them, a lot about the Pope. Eventually, the Pope catches on. We need to remember that Luther, while he is now a monumental figure, was nothing then. He was a young and small professor at Wittenberg. He was a monk. He was not a cardinal. He wasn't some sort of bishop. He was nothing in the face of the Catholic Church. And more than that, not even in the face of Catholic Church in the Holy Roman Empire. Remember, the Catholic Church and the Holy Roman Empire together were the embodied kingdom of God. What the Pope said stood for what God said. So eventually, Luther is brought to the Diet of Worms. John Eck was the man who was appointed to to persecute him and to prosecute him. And he lays out all of Luther's writings and he says, listen, you need to recant these, son. And Luther says, well, I got to tell you, there's a lot of stuff that's in there that's good. There's a lot of stuff that's in there that that you would agree with and I can't in good conscience simply recant on all of it. If, If you would be so kind as to show me where I err. And Eck was having none of it. Eck was not there to debate with Luther about what was good or what was bad. The only job of Eck at that time was to get Luther to recant or to burn. That's it. Again, Luther's a small man. What he's facing is not just the burning at the stake, but burning in hell. This is what the Catholic Church is holding over him. The weight of all of the world, the weight of full weight of the Catholic Church is standing on him now, is pressed down upon him. And this is his last chance. And Luther says very clearly, no, here I stand. We're not going to face death. Chances are very, very small. And you're not going to face imprisonment. You're probably going to face dirty looks at best. 
you might face some sort of persecution from the people at work. But friends, you have to be willing to stand for what is right. You have to be. Not based on popularity. Not based on what the authority of anything on the earth tells you. But based solely on the word of God. The hallmark of Luther and the Reformation was that Luther was not going to stand on what the Pope said. Luther was going to stand on what the Word of God said. And until Eck or the Pope himself showed Luther where he was wrong from Scripture, he was not going to move. And neither can we. The unpeople, however, you'll notice in chapter 17, don't even stand for what is right. They're so far away from standing for what is right. It's not even a matter of them standing alone for what is right. They won't even work together for what is right. You hear what they say at the very beginning of this. In verse 14, the people of Joseph spoke to Joshua saying, why have you given me but one lot and one portion as an inheritance? Although I am a numerous people, since all along the Lord has blessed me, the very fact that these two tribes stood before Joshua and said, listen, we're a numerous people. God has blessed us. Is an amazing bit of deception on their part. Not deceiving Joshua, not deceiving us, but deceiving themselves. This is indeed, in itself, the keeping of God's promise to Abraham. I will make your people numerous. I will bless you and make them as the stars of the sky and the sand on the seashore. Ephraim and Manasseh have experienced that blessing. And yet they turn around and they say, we can't kick them out of the promised land. God has blessed us with numbers, but he won't bless us in victory. And instead of working together for it, instead of using the blessing that God has given them in numbers and coming en masse and in force against the people of Canaan, what do they do? They leave them there. And even when they're strong, they only subject them to forced labor. Unpeople don't stand for what is right. They are unwilling to even band together for what is right, let alone standing alone for it. This is why we have viceless like we do in the book of Romans and in the book of Galatians. In Romans 1, 29 through 31, when we typically think of vice when we typically think of these evil things, we, we think of these grand sexual sins or things that kind of go against the Ten Commandments, huge sins like murder and adultery. We think of these things as being truly, truly evil. But listen to how much of what Paul writes in here has to do with defeating the unity within the body of not working together to accomplish what God desires. And speaking of a world that is filled with idolatry and rampant sexual sin, this is what Paul says that they were filled with. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They're full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They're gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. They are out for themselves. Not only are they unwilling to stand up for what is right alone, they're unwilling to work with the church of God for what is good together. One of the greatest sins that we find in the book of Corinthians is the fact that these 
people who were so intent on getting the great gifts of God were doing that at the expense of the unity of the church. And they were splitting the church apart. Paul's most angry letter in First and Second Corinthians is because of this, the disunity that he finds within these churches. The book of Galatians says the same thing. Galatians chapter 5, verses 16 through 20, But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are evident, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, and divisions. This is what the flesh does. It divides people. It keeps the people of God from working in unity, and it describes those who live by the flesh and not by the Spirit. It describes those who are in the church, but they aren't actually part of the church. It describes the unpeople, not the true children of God. The true, true child of God will stand for what is right. We too must continually stand with one another. This is one of the reasons why we gather together for prayer. Not only in community groups, which we do, but on those Saturday mornings once a month, we gather together for prayer. We ought to be doing that as a community together. We ought to be fully participating in every ministry we can. Because it is by that that you are refreshed when you are tired. It is by that that you are encouraged when you are disappointed in your life. It is by that that you are encouraged in the gospel to continue to hope. It is by that that you are strengthened in the gospel. It is by all of these things that we gather together, as the book of Hebrews says, do not, do not neglect the gathering together. The full quote from Hebrews 10, 24 through 25, and let us consider how to stir one another up to good love and works, to love and good works. Not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. We are not a virtual community. We are not a community because we send text messages to one another. We're not a community because we're friends on Facebook. We're a community because we gather together. That is what makes us a community. we are unwilling to stand together to do the will of God, we demonstrate that we are not truly children of God. Let us stand and bind ourselves to one another that we might do what God has willed for us to do. And third, the child of God encourages others to fulfill God's will. He encourages others to fulfill God's will. Caleb takes over the vast majority of Hebron. His, his exploits there are worthwhile. Then in chapter 15, we come back to the example of Caleb. And this is what happens in verse 13 of chapter 15. According to the commandment of the Lord to Joshua, Joshua gave to Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, a portion among the people of Judah, Kiriath Arba, that is Hebron. And Arba was the father of Anak. And Caleb drove out from there the three sons of Anak, Sheshai, Ahiman and Talmai, the descendants of Anak. And he went up from there against the inhabitants of Debir. So he has already wiped out a good portion of the Anak, and you can tell if you go back and read that 
portion of chapter 14 that we read again and study it, you can tell that Caleb was sort of licking his chops to get at the Anak because the Anak were the people that everyone was so scared of. And Caleb, as an 85-year-old man, says, remember how all the Israelites were so scared to go against the Anakim? As an 85-year-old man, I'm going to go lay waste to them. I'm really excited about this. But he's having trouble with Debir. He goes up against it. Now the name of Debir was formerly Kiriath-Sefer, and Caleb says, whoever strikes Kiriath-Sefer and captures it, to him I will give Akash, my daughter, as a wife. That seems like an odd thing. We don't usually treat our daughters like that. But as a father, you could do worse. This guarantees that the man who is going to marry his daughter is a man who is willing to do what God requests of him, In the face of great adversity, this is not an easy town to take or Caleb would have just taken it on his own. But more than that, it is clear that it is not just a man who claims to do what is God's will. He is doing what is actually God's will and the only way he's going to take it is if God is with him. Caleb is pushing for others to do the will of God, to do what God has desired for Joshua and the rest of Israel to do, to kick out the Canaanites, to kick out the Anakim, to destroy them forever. It's not just here that we see this. In the beginning of the book of Judges, we have the same story repeated. The book of Judges, verses 1 through 3, beginning in chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. After the death of Joshua, the people of Israel inquired of the Lord, who shall go up first for us against the Canaanites to fight against them? Because remember, Joshua was old and advanced in years. And God came to him and said, Joshua, you're old and advanced in years. And you're going to die. So get ready to die. But I will go with the people and I will kick out the rest of the Canaanites. So the book of Judges opens with that. Joshua is dead. The Canaanites are still there. and They need to be pushed out. And it opens where Joshua ends. This incredibly positive book of Joshua. Joshua is just radiant with positivity through and through. There are specks, there's these tiny little little points of difficulty and points where not everybody was driven out. But, But Joshua hits those things like those big, long, fat speed bumps, not like the big speed bumps that you have to slow down for, but the ones that you barely have to slow down for, you kind of ramp off of. He kind of skips over them like that. He barely even slows down for it. But the book of Judges comes to a full stop at those things and say, who is going to go up? The Lord said, Judah shall go up, for behold, I have given the land into his hand. He picks Judah for this. And Judah said to Simeon, his brother, these are tribes, by the way, not just individuals, these are tribes. Judah, the tribe of Judah, says to Simeon, his brother, come up with me into the territory allotted to me that we may fight against the Canaanites, and I likewise will go with you into the territory allotted to you. So Simeon went with him. And Judah went against the Canaanites, down in verse 10, who lived in Hebron. Who went into Hebron and destroyed all the inhabitants there? It wasn't Judah in general, but it was Caleb in specifics. Caleb is the one pressing Judah to do what is required of her, him. Caleb is the one who is pressing Simeon to do what is required of him. It is Caleb who has victory over Hebron and over Debir. The same exact passage is repeated here in the book of Judges. The name of Debir was formerly Kiriath-Sefer, and Caleb said, He who attacks Kiriath-Sefer and captures it, I will give him Achish, my daughter, for a wife. In verse 19, And the Lord was with Judah, and he took possession of the hill country. 
but he could not drive out the inhabitants of the plain because they had chariots of iron. So Judah doesn't successfully do all that they do. As a matter of fact, Judah is not the only one. Every single tribe comes in for this treatment. But one place, one place destroys all of them. Verse 20, And Hebron was given to Caleb, as Moses had said, and he drove out from it the three sons of Anak. Caleb does what God requires of him, and he encourages Judah and Simeon to do likewise. He encourages everyone to go and do the will of God. His lasting influence is found in these passages because he has done what God has required of him. As for the rest, the book of Judges takes a very quick turn. All that sounds great, but then the book of Judges hits on the fact that these tribes haven't been kicked out. And it goes on to list Benjamin, the tribes of Joseph, which include Manasseh and Ephraim. It includes Zebulun, Asher, Naphtali, Dan, the tribe of Judah, that have allotments given to it where they are unwilling or unable to kick out the Canaanites. And eventually what you get is Israel becoming more like those pockets of people. They continue to bow down to the gods of those people who they were unwilling to kick out. And by the end, while we have this great heritage of Caleb that is passed down even to us of faithfulness. What is the heritage of Ephraim and Manasseh, these tribes who were unwilling to kick out the Canaanites because they had chariots of iron, even though they had vast numbers and God had blessed them? What is their legacy? By the time we get down to Judges chapter 19, as the cycle of Judges continues to unwind and the people of God look more and more like unpeople, they look like Canaanites, what do we have? We have the people coming up against a city, a Levite and his concubine and one of his servants are with him and they're traveling at night and the servant says, hey, we should go to this city. This is a Jebusite city, but we need to stop for the night. And the Levite says what we would think wisely. We're not going to stop at a Jebusite city. We're going to go and we are going to stay at a city of the people of Israel. And so they go to a city of the people of Israel and Benjamin and what happens? People find out that they're there. And like Sodom and Gomorrah, the men almost break down the door saying, we want to know this man. The man who was inside is unwilling to give up this Levite. And so he sends out his virgin daughter and the man's concubine. And they are used all night so that she dies on the doorstep that morning. This leads to a civil war. It's not for nothing that not only do the people commit the same sin as Sodom and Gomorrah, the irony is they passed over a Canaanite town to land at a Canaanite town. Listen, whether you like it or not, you can do the Charles Barkley thing and say, I'm not a role model all you want to. You are. To every single person around you, you are. They watch you. They listen to you. They listen to how you speak. They listen to how you carry yourself. They listen to how angry you get, how calm you are. They listen to how you handle your business, how you speak about other people, how you speak about the Lord. They watch you. You are either encouraging people to go after the Lord or you are encouraging people to be at enmity with him. One of those two things is true and there is no middle ground. Time and time again in the New Testament, we are told that pastors, especially pastors, are to be the kind of people who model good, responsible behavior for the people of God. 
Paul writes to Titus in Titus chapter 2, verse 7, show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works. And in your teaching, show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned so that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. What's amazing about that passage is just a bit earlier, even before he gets to the elders, even before he gets to the teachers that Titus would be, he talks about old women the same way. He says the elderly women among you ought to disciple the younger women among you. They ought to be models of faithfulness and goodness to younger women so that they would know how to behave. Elder men are to do the exact same thing. This is what it means to be people who make disciples. We don't just make disciples. We don't just make disciples by hearing words. We don't just make disciples by hearing good preaching. Charles Stanley might be a good preacher, but he is not making you a disciple. You make disciples by living with people. You make disciples by watching people in their lives, how they react. You make disciples by living with people through difficulties, by praying with people, not simply by being perfect. Part of making disciples is messing up, asking for forgiveness and extending mercy and forgiveness and comfort to those who sin against you and against others. This is what it means to encourage others to fulfill God's will. It means that when we do mess up, we are quick to seek forgiveness and unity and brotherhood. When we are sinned against, we are quick to give that forgiveness when it is asked for. We model the gospel in those things. Caleb stands as an example of what it means for us to do what is right before God and what it means for us to respond rightly to the promises of God. And while Caleb is a fine example of what it means to be a child of God, there is no better, finer, or sweeter example of this than Jesus Christ himself, who is, of course, the Son of God. Christ embodies everything that Caleb embodies here and more. Caleb learned from his past so that when he was facing adversity, he was able to stand up Against it. He was able to not only face the Anakim, but even the people of Israel, and to stay strong in the Lord. And he sets a good example for us how much more Christ, because Christ didn't just face the adversity of the Anakim. He didn't just face the adversity of his people, but he faced the adversity of hell itself, of the fiery, burning wrath of God. Jesus wasn't just left sort of alone, he was left all alone. His disciples would leave him. The creation that he made that he came to knew him not. His own people denied him, and his own father on the cross treated him as though he were sin. But Christ, all the same, trusts himself to that same father who turns away from him because he has known him from eternity past because he knows him, so that even when he faces a situation that you and I will never face, and he faces a difficulty that you and I will never face, that is the abject horror of hell, he is able to stand firm and entrust himself to the one who judges justly. He doesn't just stand for what is right, not even just alone, but he gives us the example of how to face that adversity. That we do so in hope, knowing that God is greater than the things of the world. And what is even better than simply being an example for us of which he is the ultimate example? He is better than an example because he gives us help. Caleb can't do that. 
Caleb can only give us an example, but Jesus Christ through his death on the cross and his resurrection give us not only forgiveness of sins, but new life. And he provides for us the Holy Spirit that we can walk in the spirit and not in the flesh. He provides for us all of these things because he is our greatest example, not just giving you an example to follow, but giving you the means to follow that example. So Christ is indeed all in all. He is the fulfillment of the promises of God and the perfect example of how to respond to those promises. All of God's true and ever-abiding promises have found their yes and amen in Jesus. The question that remains is not whether those promises are true today. The question is how we, his people, respond to those promises. Will you respond with a childlike faith that is the hallmark of God's children? Or will you remain in your sin, steadfast in your pride as an unperson, unwilling to see the beauty of the cross, unwilling to believe in the sacrifice of Christ, unwilling to humble yourself before Jesus, unwilling to do what he has called you to do, and certainly unwilling to be what he has called you to be. May the true church of Christ arise put their armor on, and follow the call of Christ, our captain. Let us pray. Father, we are thankful for your word to us. We are thankful that it comes to us to rebuke us in our sloth. We are thankful that it comes to us to encourage us. Father, we know that your word can cut, but it heals. We know that we have failed in many respects before you, God whether it means that we have been unwilling to stand up to those who would stand against you, whether it means that we have been unwilling to encourage others where they need to be encouraged, whether that means that we are simply unwilling to band together to do what you have required of us, and we have forsaken coming together to not only share in one another's gifts, but to be encouraged by one another. Regardless of how we have failed you, Father, let us come before you in repentance today, asking for your forgiveness for our sin, knowing that it is there for us because of the great work of Jesus Christ. And as we do so, may we praise him, for he is good. And we can find your promises true in him. May he be glorified and praised from this day and forevermore. Amen.